This evening we're looking at Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Sin revealed by the law. Sin revealed by the law. In studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, we've spent a lot of time considering what it means to be justified and saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not through your own works of the law. We've seen that the very law that moralistic people boastfully claim to keep and justify themselves by only serves to convict them of their sin and that same law will ultimately condemn them to hell. Last week, we started chapter 7 with Paul pointing out that the law only has dominion over a person as long as that person lives. He gave an example of a woman bound to her husband whilst he lives. But then when he is dead, the woman no longer has uh, is bound by the laws of marriage. Obviously, his death does not free all married women, just his widow. Likewise, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, it brought an end of the dominion or the power of law over all who are planted in the likeness of his death and raised up to newness of life in him. In other words, all who are trusting in Jesus. The law no longer has dominion over them. However, those who are not trusting in Jesus are still very much under the dominion of God's law, whether they know it or not. Uh, they may protest that fact, but it's a reality. They are under God's law, which says the wages of sin is death. We saw that people who are no longer under the law are said to be married to another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been delivered from the law, they bring forth good fruit unto God as they draw on the grace of the Lord Jesus and as God works in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Moving on now to verse 7 of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul opens up his heart and he bears his soul as he considers the influence of sin upon himself. Notice I say the influence of sin upon himself, not the dominion of sin upon himself. Paul was someone who was not under the dominion of the law anymore, neither was he under the dominion of sin anymore. Nevertheless, as we shall see, sin still had an influence on Paul. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. In verse 7, Paul dismisses any idea that since we're dead to the law, the law must therefore be bad, far from it. The law is good in that it exposed Paul's sin. Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. That is a tremendous admission when you consider that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul said concerning himself, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, 
That's how Paul saw himself. Blameless. In that passage, Paul was reflecting upon how he once was before coming under the grace of God. He was a zealous Pharisee who kept the law to the letter, at least outwardly, but most certainly not in a renewed spirit. And he did that whilst he persecuted and wasted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This was his, uh, how he saw himself before coming to faith in Jesus. But then the law, like an x-ray machine, revealed the sin of covetousness in him, in all its ugliness. It's interesting that it's covetousness, because Paul, outwardly, as a Pharisee, as Saul, the Pharisee, he would have uh, striven to keep the, the law. But covetousness, it looks in the heart. It's hidden away in the heart. And already I trust people will know exactly what I'm talking about there. Outwardly you can, you can do all the right things, you can tick the boxes. But what's going on inside the heart? That's another matter altogether. And there was a time when Paul saw the law, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Bang! That hit him hard. And he realised just what a sinner he really was. In verse 7, Paul was confessing that the law convicted him of sinful desires which are in violation of God's laws. Those same laws that he had claimed that he was blameless with regards to keeping. I'd like to consider an example of the law of the land exposing my criminality. There have been more than a few occasions when I've been out and about in my car, here and in England. I've seen speed limit signs which have kindly informed me what the legal speed is on that stretch of road. But also, and more to the point, those signs have told me very clearly that I was breaking the law, that I was driving too fast. I've lost count of the times that has happened. Without the speed signs, I may not have been aware that I was breaking the law. As it was when I saw those signs, both the law of the land and my inclination to break the law by driving too fast exercised power over me. The law of the land was good in what it was doing, but the speeding was not good. When it comes to God's law, we've seen that it it has no more dominion over you, Christians. No dominion over the Christians. And similarly, you are delivered from it. In the sense that God's law can no longer condemn you, since Jesus has taken the curse of God's law upon himself at the cross. Also, we've already seen that sin no longer has dominion over you either. So it's not just the law, it's sin. No more dominion over you. But, as has already been considered, and as I'm sure you'll all know very well from your own experience, that does not mean to say that you now live a life of sinless perfection, does it, Christian? Or is there a Christian in here who does live a sinlessly perfect life? 
I'd love to hear from you if there is one. What it means, however, is that sin is deprived of its power if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are drawing on his grace. Well, have a look at verses 8 through to 12. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law did not take the covetousness away from Paul. Far from it. In fact, as can be seen in verse 8, when Paul became conscious of his lust or his sinful desires, sin took hold of him and stirred him up to all manner of new violations. Speaking about sin and law, Spurgeon said, that must be a very terrible power which gathers strength from that which should restrain it and rushes on the more violently in proportion as it is reined in. Sin kills men by that which was ordained to life. Where Paul says, for without the law, sin was dead, that certainly does not mean that he had no sin. It means that without the law, he had no conviction concerning his sinful desires. Paul says that he was alive without the law once. Or at least that's how Paul saw it when he was a Pharisee and when his confidence was in his obedience to the letter of the law. He was alive without the law once. And that's how it was until such time the law convicted him of his covetousness, of his sinful desires, hidden away deep in his heart and all manner of other sins at which point he died. As to what killed him and when, he died to sin, to the law, as his justification before God, and he died, he died to, sorry, he died, he died to the law as his justification before God, and he died to sin. And that happened when God worked in him repentance and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. In verse 13, Paul sums up what he has just been saying. The commandment, brings death. That's God's law. It brings death. However, he goes on to explain that it's not so much the commandment which is holy and good that brings death. After all, if you were someone who did, I'm speaking very hypothetically now, if you were someone who did keep God's law, if you were born without sin and you never, ever broke God's law, that law would justify you. 
But that is not the case with any of us. So, the commandment brings death. It's not so much the commandment that brings death, but rather it is the transgression of the law that brings death. Therefore, it is sin that brings death. The wages of sin is death. God uses the brightness of his law to expose the darkness of our sin. Not so much the sinful sinful things that we do, like maybe today you've done this sinful thing, you've had that sinful thought, whatever, you've spoken something that you've immediately regretted. I'm not so much talking about that. The law exposes our sinfulness, the fact that we are sin. Our sinfulness which deceives and kids us that we're just fine with God when the reality is very different. And how many people are there like that who think that they're fine with God and that's their sinfulness or the deceitfulness of their hearts, their sinful hearts that tell them that they're fine with God when they're not. But then God uses his law to shine a light on what we're really like or uses his law like an x-ray machine so that we can see into our own hearts how sinful we really are as the law also shows the holiness of almighty God. Let's have a look at verses 14 and 15. For we know that the law is spiritual But I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Having shared his experience of being convicted by the law of his sinful desires and having been slain by the law and slain by sin, the sin that it exposed, Paul makes no pretense that everything is now just fine with him. And that he's, because he is trusting in Jesus, there's no more sin in his life. Far from it. Taking nothing away from what he's already, what has already been considered, that Christians are under grace and not under the law, and that they live resurrection lives in the risen Saviour, having been crucified with him. Paul continues to bear his soul with respect to his ongoing battle with sin. This is the Apostle Paul opening up about his battle with sin. What we shall consider now must surely be the reality for all who are in Jesus, seeking to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. First of all, by saying that the law is spiritual, but he is carnal, Paul acknowledges that the law, which is from God, reflects God's holy character. Each one of those ten commandments, you can think of uh, God beaming down something of his holiness and his righteousness, his purity and his hatred for sin. However, the same cannot be said about Paul. By saying that he is carnal, he is not saying that he is in the flesh, The person who is in the flesh is an unregenerate, unsaved, unbelieving person. If you're a Christian here, you are not in the flesh. 
However, being carnal means the opposite of all that the law is. As the Apostle John said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is Christians. As Christians, we know that there is sin in us. And that is what Paul was talking about when he referred to himself as being carnal. He was not in the flesh, but he acknowledged that he was carnal. Also, Paul admits to being sold under sin, and he was speaking about now, even as a Christian, sold under sin. The fact of the matter is that Christians are no longer the slaves of sin. By the grace of God, if you're a Christian, far from being a slave to sin, you're yoked and bound to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are a servant of the Most High God. Even so, sin is very much still the experience of all believers in Jesus in a, in a way that is not felt by other people. Only when death ushers the Christian into the presence of his Saviour will he be separated from the presence and that awful experience, that daily experience of sin. Again, as a Christian, even a Christian with, of maybe 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, you must be more conscious, acutely conscious of sin than anyone who has not received Jesus as their Saviour and their Lord. And I say that to you as people who are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know more about sin, indwelling sin, than any unbeliever. And that's why, by the grace of God, you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. To help me with my understanding, I keep coming back to chapter 6 and verse 6. Ever since I first read it, when I was preparing uh, a sermon in chapter 6, I've kept on coming back to it, and I'm going to do it now. Chapter 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. There's a couple of things going on there. Our old man is crucified with him. Crucified does mean being put to death. It can mean nothing else. Our old man is our old identity in Adam when we were uh, children of Adam. That's dead and gone if you're a Christian. Finished. However, there's something else going on there in verse 6. That the sin, the body of sin might be destroyed. That actually means that the body of sin might be deprived of its power. Deprived of its power. Again, it no longer has that dominion over you because it is being deprived of its power. That henceforth we should not serve sin. We should not be the slaves of sin. And that's how it is for you and me as Christians. 
basically, coming back to chapter 7 and verse 14, Paul was describing not his position as a child of God, which is one of being accepted in the beloved Saviour, but his experience of living the daily Christian life. It's his daily experience. We most certainly need not imagine that Paul's life was characterised by sin, but he was nevertheless describing not just his Christian experience, but ours also as Christians, a life of struggles with sin. Verse 15 is an explanation of his struggles with sin. Paul confesses that he still does what is wrong, but instead of loving the evil, he hates it, he abhors it. And that in itself is evidence of God's amazing grace. And again, this is all stuff that I can relate to, and I'm sure you can, you dear Christians in here. You still sin, but you say, wretched man that I am, or wretched woman that I am. You know what you ought to be doing, but you don't do it. The things that you shouldn't do, those things you do. And it's a daily reminder that sin is still there. Let's have a look at verses 16 and 17. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Most sane people understandably disapprove of murder and various other unlawful acts, even though they do not acknowledge that their own hearts are desperately wicked and, in fact, murderous. From the heart proceeds uh, evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, blasphemies, all sorts of horrible things come from the heart. However, when a regenerate or born-again person does the things that he hates, he experiences a bitter struggle because his mind approves of the very law that forbids the sin that he is committing against God. And that's where it really hurts, isn't it? As a Christian, every time you do something wrong, ultimately, it's against your God and Saviour that you have sinned. And you've done that evil in his sight. That must surely be the experience of all who receive Jesus as their saviour from sin. From the time of your conversion onwards, you have that hatred of sin against your God and saviour. Just like Paul and just like King David of old who confessed to God, against thee, thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Again, that was David. He was a man of God. When he said those things, he'd sinned grievously. And he said against thee, thee only have I sinned. In verse 16, you see something of that battle whereby the flesh or the sinful nature opposes the lusts 
against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That battle inside. Flesh against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. And that describes what is going on inside Christians. Whereas those who are unregenerate, unbelieving, controlled by sin, under the dominion of sin, know nothing of such conflict. The conflict within Paul can be seen in verse 17, where he is, as a new creature in Christ, he rightly distances himself from the sin that still operates in him. Again, that must surely be the experience of all of God's people. Verses 18 through to 21. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Paul said, for I know that in me, but then in brackets, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Can you see that in the brackets? Ignore that bit in the brackets at the moment. If you you ignore the brackets, it's, for I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. But he didn't say that, did he? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. As such, even though sin continued to reside in Paul's flesh, in his body, the implication is that there was also good in him. And there most certainly was good in Paul. Why is that? Because he was a Christian. For example, Paul was indwelt by the triune God. And so are you, dear Christian. Even though you've got that battle with um, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and all that going on inside you, you are indwelt by the triune God. Just like Paul, in you, that is in your flesh, dwelleth no good thing. You know that. You know that as a Christian. In you dwelleth no good thing in your flesh. But Jesus dwells in your heart by faith. You'll get that from Ephesians. Jesus dwells in your heart by faith. Also you are indwelt and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the earnest of your heavenly inheritance indeed God worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure so God is in you each one of you Christians however none of those things can be said about unregenerate people for the unregenerate people those who are not trusting in Jesus you can ignore the brackets the brackets aren't there And you can simply read, for I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. That is how it is for the person who is not trusting in Jesus. And who is not a new creature in Christ. Trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. In verses 22 to 23, 
There are two things going on in Paul. Let's have a look at those two verses. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He delights in God's law after the inward man. In other words, he delights in God's law deep within within his regenerated spirit and his renewed mind. And come to think of it, so does the man who is blessed in Psalm 1. He delights in the law of the law, the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Furthermore, I trust that that is your testimony, dear Christian, that you love God's law, that you delight in it. You're not under the law, but you don't throw God's law in the bin, do you? It's God's law. It's not man's stupid laws or man's ungodly laws. It's God's perfect law. The law that converts the soul, that that is sweeter than the honeycomb. However, we see that another law, the law of sin, still operates within the members of Paul's body. Verses 24 and 25 now. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the, law, with, uh, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We've got this struggle going on again inside Paul. Paul, having made it crystal clear that even though sin no longer had that dominion over him, he confessed to the fact that sin plagued him in a way that it never used to before the law shone its light upon his sin. And he deplored the fact that he didn't serve God as he ought to because of his sinful flesh. And he called himself a wretched man. By that time, Paul had been a Christian about 25 years. I've had people tell me, Christians tell me, oh, Glenn, you've got to understand Paul said that before he was referring to when he was a Pharisee. A wretched man that I am. Not at all. Not at all. It's, it's simply not the case. Paul, who had been a Christian for 25 years or so, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, referred to himself as a wretched man, and I'm sure he meant it. By that time, he was still saying those things. And that is how it is for all who have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, and who are earnestly seeking to live godly lives. Job, in the Old Testament, he was another one. In the very first verses of the book of Job, Job receives an accolade from none other than Almighty God. It's written in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright. His perfectness or perfection in his uprightness would have been by faith in his Redeemer, or through faith in his Redeemer. 
So he was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil or shunned evil. Yet despite that amazing testimony concerning Job, in chapter 40, verse 4, Job said the following of himself to the Lord, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. That's Job's estimation of himself, that he was vile. Also, there's King David, whom the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. For all that, in Psalm 38 and verse 3, David said, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. And in verse 7 he said, For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. David was clearly talking about the, uh, the, the, the body of his flesh and the members of his body. My loins are filled with a loathsome disease. Talking about sin. The, the indwelling sin. And he was a man of God. Outside the Bible, there's the hymn writer Augustus Toplady, who said of himself, Oh, that ever such a wretch as I should be tempted to think highly of, my, of himself. I that, am of, I that am of myself nothing but sin and weakness, in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing, I who deserve damnation for the best work I ever performed. Can you imagine that? Christian saying, I deserve damnation for the best work I ever performed. Everything we do is stained through with sin. And we need to get it clear in our heads that our acceptance is and always will be in the beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For all the great things that the Apostle Paul did in Christian service, you can be sure that he would never have thought to commend himself before God. To commend himself before God would be to condemn himself before God. He knew only too well that as someone in whose flesh dwelt no good thing, that his acceptance before God was in Jesus Christ. You would not expect an unregenerate person to say such things, such as, O oh, wretched man that I am, O oh, wretched woman that I am. You won't hear it from someone who's not trusting in Jesus. They think too highly of themselves. But it does characterise a truly born-again Christian who, day by day, with much prayer and the enabling grace of God, is seeking to mortify the deeds of the body and to bring forth good fruit. That is what we earnestly desire to do as Christians, to bring forth good fruit for the glory of God. I'm sure I'm not the only Christian who expresses more frustration and horror now concerning my transgressions than I ever did when I first became a Christian. And I look forward to the, the day when I shall finally be free from the sinful flesh. And so did the Apostle Paul. And that's why he said, 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That was his desire, to be free from sin once and for all. His answer as to who shall deliver him from the body of this death is given in verse 25 where he thanks God through Jesus Christ, his Lord, Jesus Christ, your Lord, dear Christian. And it's on that note that we will finish as we consider that Christians can be fully assured that when they die, they will go to be with their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and at last, the conflict will be over. It will come to an end, and sin will at long last be left behind. Amen.